On the 14th of May, 1948, David Ben-Gurion moved world Jewry forever from the messianic wish of Hashanah Ba'ah Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem to Hayom V'Kol Yom Yerushalayim today and every day in Jerusalem by proclaiming the establishment of the first Jewish state in over 2,000 years, the State of Israel. And in forming this new nation, global Jewish focus moved forever from prayer to reality, from hope to intention, from abstract to practical, from planning to action. Since its establishment, Israel and world Jewry have maintained a symbiotic relationship, Israel establishing and growing itself and world Jewry re-establishing and regrowing itself after the Holocaust. Earlier generations of diaspora Jews pledged their allegiance, money and support to Israel, but asked little in return for it. But it seems today's and future generations are moving beyond passive support to wanting a more active and intimate role in shaping Israel's future and asking for more in return. My name is Morris Mizzle. I'm a global futurist who has for many decades explored what may be ahead for my clients and audiences so that they can better resource and prepare themselves for the opportunities that await them. And in conjunction with the Australian Jewish News, we've embarked on a future quest of discovery, exploring the many possible tomorrows of Jews and Judaism between now and 2048. In this journey into future Jews, we look ahead to the 100th anniversary of Israel's independence in search of what its relationship and influence on the world Jewry and beyond might become and what brand Israel might be. Joining me this month in discussion I have intrepid explorers, each in their own way, shaping Brand Israel 2048. The first of our panelists, I'd like to welcome Ronit Haid, an experienced social change leader with 20 years of developing and leading initiatives that address Israel's most complex social challenges. She is also an adaptive leadership educator who has worked with dozens of leading initiatives She is also an adaptive leadership educator who has worked with dozens of changemakers from the public and non-profit sectors in Israel. Prior to joining the Hartman Institute, Ronit served as the executive director of Shatil, the capacity building arm of the New Israel Fund, providing consultancy and coordinating coalition and campaigns to strengthen Israeli's democracy. Ronit holds an MBA from the Harvard's Kennedy School as a Werner Fellow and an MA in Social Psychology from the Hebrew University. She is a devout Jerusalemite who lives in Ain Kerem with her husband, three children, two cats, and currently three chickens, and is a published writer of a series of children's stories, Manyara the Witch. Welcome. The next of our guests is Paul Israel, born in Melbourne, he has lived over 30 years in Israel. He is the Executive Director of the Israel Australia, New Zealand and Oceanic Chamber of Commerce, an independent non-profit organization dedicated to the promotion of bilateral trade and relations. For the past two decades, Paul has assisted Israel and Australian companies to do business with each other by helping with key introductions and matchmaking. Paul has spent most of his career giving advice to executives from both countries, helping with strategy, planning, 
innovation, technology scouting, in-country support, cultural differences, and most importantly, building relationship, including investments that add real value and stand the test of time. He has hosted over 5,000 visitors from Australasia, and I'm happy to say me a few times, such as prime ministers, federal and state ministers, politicians, business people, senior executives, investors, leading academics, and communal leaders. He has a Bachelor of Business in Marketing and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Monash University. Welcome, Paul. And Thank the you. third of our explorers this month is Michael Menheim. He is currently serving as Shaliyah of Hatsofim and Garin Sabah, also known as the Israeli Scouts, part of a large worldwide youth scout movement for native Hebrew speakers. He is also Australian Executive Director and the Federal Shaliyah of AZYC. Before arriving in Australia, Michael worked as a Vice Director of Poland Youth Delegations of the Israeli Scouts. Previously, he worked as the Educational Director for three years. Prior to his shlichut, Michael was involved in several initiatives in the field of public diplomacy and connecting people through culture. He holds a BA in Government, Diplomacy and Strategy from IDC Herzliya, specialising in the field of public diplomacy. So welcome to the three of you and thank you for joining us this month in conversation. I'd like to explore with you through the work that you have done and currently are doing. What do Jews living in Australia and the wider diaspora, from your point of view, need, want and expect of Israel today? If I may start, I think um, to bring my point of view as a, a Gen Y um, young executive director working mainly with uh, um, teenagers in Australia, I think I think the first thing uh, the young generation is looking from Israel is 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 a, is a relationship based on trust um, and a relationship based not only on the connection of we're all Jews, we have a common history and we have um, great history uh, to rely on, but also um, we, have, we have a future, like a story to write together, you know? We have a society that needs to grow um, and a, a diverse society. Um, and and we have to look at, at, at Israel not only as, you know, a place for the Jews to live in, but also a place for the Israeli society that is mainly or the majority are Jews, but also everyone needs to live with dignity, equality, um, and with no, you know, conflict. Um, I, I guess that's my... society is facing how do we as as a nation that is known to be a startup nation we face so many challenges in Israel um, and that is uh, that is what I love about Israeli society it's it's not a simple place to be in with a very um, striking 
differences between different groups, um, nationalities within Israeli society, between Jews and Arabs, between ultra-Orthodox and secular, um, between periphery and center. And one of the things that is happening and is very exciting in Israel society is that there are developing initiatives for how do we maximize um, the good things in our society in that sense. And that is something we can bring onto the world as well, not just being a, a country or a society in conflict, but a country that can talk about how do we deal with diversity? How do we understand that there are differences within this different sets of values that clash within Israeli society? And that is something that I also hear from many young Jews around the world that this is what they're looking for. This is where they want to see their connection what you know a lot of Australian Jews look to get from Israel and they get from Israel especially when they visit here is confidence a lot of people when they come here are just so impressed with how confident Israelis are in how they express um, them being Jewish not so much Judaism but being Jewish um, vibrancy people come here and just get energized when they come to Israel and, and boldness you know we see this now obviously with corona and the extreme situation happening in Australia the extreme situation happening in Israel, the nanny state versus the boldness, I think they're the type of things that Australian Jews look to get from Israel. And people I'm talking to haven't been here for two years are missing that, that recharge. That's what Israel provides with all the issues that Michael and um, really have touched on. Yeah, I... of what it means to be a free Jew in his own country with the culture, with everything, experience everything. And I think this is very inspiring. Uh, so I think it's absolutely right. But, and, and I think it's actually not contradicting what we're saying. Um, there is, you know, in Israel, we don't, we're, we're Jewish and it's, you know, um, just that maybe I guess the status quo, I was born Jewish and I, I mean, I, I'm lucky to be raised in a Masorti family. Um, so I know the traditions and I go to shul and it's not foreign language to me. Um, uh, someone in the Jewish community here in Australia needs to choose to be Jewish or needs to choose practices Judaism in order to, fe to feel affiliated or close to it. you live somewhere else and you need to choose your Jewish life. You need to choose the way you practice your Jewish tradition. You need to choose the shul you go to or the way that you, if you want to go to a mikveh, the way you do that. Suddenly for many Jewish Israelis um, in different, uh, not just secular, I said secular, but I think it's also for uh, Orthodox and, and 
a variety of the, the way that people practice their Judaism, they see that there are different ways of doing that. And it's really interesting to note how it kind of opens our eyes to, wait a second, there, there are different ways for being um, and living as a Jew when you, when you build it bottom up, when you don't just fit into a larger system of religion that exists, that is being held by the state, as it is in Israel, but rather you build your congregation or you work with your community to create the mikveh that is the right thing for your values. And once you, once Israelis or Jewish people who've been living all their lives in Israel see that, they kind of understand that there are different angles to what Jewish identity could look like. And this is one of the things that we do at the Shalom Hoffman Institute is to try to expand this way of saying there, there are a variety, the pluralistic way of being Jewish that is much more than just putting different people into a box of, you can be Orthodox, you can be Reform, you can be conservative, you can be secular or ultra-Orthodox. No, there are so many different ways to do that. And that is a very interesting dialogue that is happening now between Jews and Israel's, in Israel and outside of Israel. And I'm glad you picked up on that, Ronit, because over the past few months in discussions, it seems to be a reoccurring theme when we talk to people that are based in Israel, that we often go to them looking for advice, looking for example, looking to understand something. And it's fascinating to see this year how many people are in fact turning the mirror around and looking to us to understand what being Jewish might mean. We've had conversation with many who consider themselves, of course, to be Jewish, but say that they are more secular than anything else. And attachment to Judaism really isn't, isn't the same as it is overseas, not better or worse but just different from a diaspora Jew. And in fact, as you've said, watching the, the difficulties, the necessity to be able to connect with a community, to build a community, the things that are often taken for granted, thankfully in Israel, that, aren't, that are difficult for us in diaspora. Those things I found to be fascinating through the eyes of our Israeli-based guests. And to your point, Paul, it's not just Jews that are looking to Israel for that sense of chutzpah who are getting that sense of you know, liveliness and understanding. On the last tour I did with you, when we had the, the Western Australian delegates, and most of them were non-Jewish, it was fascinating, literally on the first evening, they'd been there for what, 24, 24, 36 hours, literally still jet lagged and only walked their way a little bit around Tel Aviv. But how... On that first night, they had already begun to understand what Israel was about, how vibrant it was. Many of them said beforehand, when I spoke to them before they left, that they were expecting a military zone. <laughs> they were expecting to have their liberties taken away from them. They were expecting to see guns on the streets. And they had this very, they had this very mono view of what Israel might be that was given to them through media and through interpretation. But living at first hand, only for those very short hours, they could see all of that was not true. And it was, it was from my viewpoint, wonderful to see how literally by the end of the seven days, they were fueled up. I mean, they were literally living this life of chutzpah. They saw a life of difference. They saw a life of vibrancy. And I've kept up with them now for, I mean, it's been a year and a half since we were able to come. It's two years now. And I must say nearly all of them, in fact, I would say all of them have taken away a legacy of that chutzpah, of that ability to be able to think differently and enact differently. So I would say one of the things that we're looking for today, absolutely, is not
understand why Israel was capable of doing that. I mean, really, if you come to Australia or if you come somewhere else, whether America or Canada, I'm not sure that it affects you as quickly as Israel yeah. does for somebody that hasn't been before. It was fascinating to watch through their eyes what Israel was, how Israel was changing them and for them to understand what it was. It was the urgency and immediacy of life. It was the understanding that there is so much possibility still around that really it was up to the individual to be able to take her or him forward. All of those things were part of an everyday life in Israel, which for many of us in the diaspora really are extraordinary. So those yeah. kinds of things, I think, are really a part of a history and of a today that I'd like to touch on a bit more as we get out, as we have this conversation further on. And as we will have, and as we would have anyway, to expand just beyond the touch that Israel gives to Jews, but also the, our place in a wider world. Going back to one of your points, Michael, I'd love to explore more about what we euphemistically call Gen X, Y, Z and A's and the next generation afterwards, because we need to remember that the next generation, you know, the people that are going to come to Israel in 2048 have not yet been born. I'm talking about those that come when they're 17 or 18. In fact, their parents most probably have not met yet. They have not yeah. even found each other yet to have the children that will want to go when they are 18 and 19 and experience the things that we've talked about. What is it that you think the, the expectations of those generations are? And what is it that Israel is expecting from them also? So you deal with them day to day. You see them. Yeah. So I guess we need to start with, with the current generation. And, you know, we can't Please. ignore COVID. Um, we have now few generation of uh, graduates who are not visiting Israel on their gap year, which used to be a tradition. And we know how um, spending like a, um, a decent time in Israel, more than a like, couple of weeks, um, is such a meaningful experience for the long run, okay? For, the, for this connection and for, for the young generation who establish a family and later visiting Israel for, even if it's just for the Bar Mitzvah or just sending the kids later for the ten program or, or just convinced that paying so much money for a gap year is, is, you know, is necessary. So hopefully, um, I mean, those kids would be able to go to Israel and use the fields, but but we're talking about a generation that will like of kids that will, their parents their parents' connection to Israel will change significantly, um, and it's not just visiting in Israel; it's also how they see Israel, as I mentioned before. You know, Israel is not just a startup nation. Israel is also also leading in you know. LGBTQI rights currently in the world, uh, sustainability, um, innovations, um, and also, you know, vegan, so many things that are, you know, very, very, very um, important to the younger generation, you know, um, climate change, uh, things, things that we may say, oh, those young people, they see it on social media and they care, but this is what they care about. And when they see that Israel is taking steps forward, those things, um, this is where they found the connections with Israel. Um, on the other hand, when they see that the, con the conflict is continuing um, and they get influenced by the social media, um, this is how they shape their, their, you know, their ideas and, and thoughts about Israel. So I don't know to say how the gener alpha generation or better generation will see Israel, 
potentially they will see Israel as a vibrant community. But this generation, what he needs is to see Israel as a, as a, as a whole. So we're talking a lot about the Jewish community, but you mentioned you're bringing to Israel not only Jews, and they look at Israel and they're like overwhelmed with the culture, with the people and stuff like that. I think the best lesson of this generation to the entire community is to start looking at Israel, not just as the Jewish community in Israel, but as the Israel, like as the Israeli society, you know, with all the defects and all the, the good parts and, you know, understanding that, you know, even if, you know, for philanthropists or just, you know, delegations or trips, what about the Bedouins in Israel? What is their situation? What is the differences between the Haredic and, um, and Arabs, you know, seculars? And I will finish with one thing that I think is, is important in this regard, and maybe I'll continue later. When former President Rivlin did his, you know, fourth tribe speech and later added the fifth tribe, which is the Jews living in diaspora, those who listened really carefully to this speech were the Jews in the diaspora. They listened, they took it, they felt part, they learned from it, and they saw it as a goal. This is the state of Israel they want to live in. You know, people in Israel sometimes skip it, you know. Unfortunately, Rivlin didn't, um, were, weren't able to, to, um, to succeed in his, uh, you know, uh, prophecy of achieving his goals. But, but the Jews in the diaspora, and especially the Jews in Australia, care about it. They're still speaking about it. They still want to see the Israeli society um, diverse and working together. And I think this is what this generation will bring. Especially, um, sorry, lastly, the young generation who's moving to Israel, look at what they're choosing to do in Israel. They're not going to high tech necessarily. They, they are going to work as educators. They're going to work in Living in Israel was the, the geula, that was the revival. That was, there is the sense that, yes, Jewish life, meaningful Jewish life can be held outside of Israel, but to do the real thing is to live in Israel. And that is shifting. And it's shifting in, in not just in the way we think about it. And when I say we, it's people who are involved in, in working with Jewish communities around the world or NGOs and civil society organizations, but it's very interesting to see that it's shifting also in within um, ministries and the way that um, the, the Jewish agency is now saying its role. It's not so much anymore about bringing Jews to make Aliyah and live, just live in Israel. The connection between Jewish people around the world to Israel is not just about let's make sure that they make Aliyah and they can live in Israel, um, but it's rather we want to continue to be connected. So I'm getting back to this very basic thing of what does it mean to be connected, to have Israel and the part being part of the Jewish people as part of your identity and feeling at home with that idea that you're part of this larger peoplehood of, of, of Jews. And when I hear um, the minister of diaspora, Nachman Shai, or Elazar Stern, who's now... Uh, hoping to become the chair of the Jewish agencies, um, one of the candidates, say that 
we're not just about making sure that Jews make Aliyah and come to live in Israel, but rather we are working towards a much greater goal of ensuring their continued connectedness to Israel. And that creates a framework of thinking and working together with the future generation and with those whose kids will come to visit Israel when they're, um, you know, 18 for their gap year. A whole, it's a whole different thing. And it's a beautiful shift to see from the inside within Israeli society that what Israeli is, society is shifting. Can I ask, do you think that the Israelis living abroad have the same connection or is it a bit different for Israelis or um, just Jewish living? Yeah. I think that's a, very, that's a very good question for Israelis living outside of Israel because their Israeli identity is already part and parcel of their identity. It's there. It's like something that will never be removed. Um, and so it's a, it's a whole different growth of, or development of identity. Um, but I think their role is changing, therefore. Their role is, is they're becoming different kind of connectors when they are Israelis living abroad, um, whether they're planning to come back to Israel or whether, whether they're not. And I think that has also changed. The 20, 30 years ago, when I was a kid, someone who moved to live outside of Israel was really like condemned. Like, you may know, now it's different. It's also different because we've become a much you know, more global community in general and people relocate and live in different places. But there is a sense that we can hold together our identity, our joint identity, when not necessarily living in Israel. And that is a very significant part. And also the idea that you can influence what's happening in Israel. You can be part of what's happening in Israel and dealing with these challenges that Michal, you mentioned and with the, the beautiful ways that Israel is addressing these challenges when you're not just living in Israel and, you know, going to the army and big question. We see a lot of our delegates, you know, the people in their 50s, 60s, and that gap here is, is, is instrumental in their Jewish connection, Israel connections, not having this now for these two years. Um, I think is, is a big challenge for Israel and Jewish communities worldwide of how to overcome that because it's nearly like a generational type um, difference. And the, and the part about Israelis is really interesting because I find at the Chamber of People making Aliyah, then contact us looking for work, a really high percentage of the Elim are now children of Israelis who, who left Israel. And it's amazing to see. And I think a lot of the parents are surprised that the kids have that, that yearning to come back. So it's actually an extra boost for the Jewish communities worldwide, these Israelis moving around the world? I guess, I guess in this regard, uh, I mean, I agree on it with most of the things you said, but uh, uh, one of the things I glad the most is that the word Yordim, you know, this title for Israelis who left Israel, we don't use it anymore. Like- It's gone, it's we gone. Condemn, no we condemn this title. Someone used it in a Zoom I did a few months ago and, Everyone was quiet and I was like, oh, thanks God that I don't need to say anything because it's really becoming like the, the no-no world. Um, and I think the Israelis, I mean, coming to you, Paul, there are still Israelis living um, abroad. Do you know, you, they close this door. They don't feel part of this village. They don't feel they want to be part of this village. But in some, in some way, when the kids grow old, they understand that they miss something or the kids don't understand Hebrew. They don't understand the culture. 
Um, I used to say that Agashash Achiver was the most important part uh, or, you know, Kaveret, and they don't recognize the songs, but, you know, it's a different generation already. Um, but, but, um, but even then, they still care about the kids coming to Israel every once in a while. They still, especially now with COVID, understand how significant this connection with Israel is. And, you know, even though kids not going to, to Israel in the past couple of years, I guess the best place to find Israel is through education and informal education. So I'm proud to sit here and say, with the youth movement, or the youth movement here doing an amazing job you know, under the SWC, all the seven Zionist youth movements um, to bringing Israel in so many different ways. So the kids will feel they are part of Israel and also the community in the team. We're targeting the parents as well because we understand that they also miss Israel. Like the longing um, affects, you know, the. a distributed Israel. The, when I grew up, the only way to be in connection with Israel was to physically be there, was for me to move myself to a geography called Israel and to do something there was the only way really I had a strong connection to Israel, apart from putting a couple of coins in a box or doing something else. I'm fascinated to see that like business, like everything else, you're really talking about taking Israel to the world, about distributing it. Yes, there is a version which, which allows you to be geographically there and to stand on the land of Israel. But there is also this notion of Israel coming to you, of it being an outreach program of where what it stands for, what it has and what it offers can be a part of your world regardless of where you are in life. And to me, that's a really interesting way that I'm, that I'm seeing through your eyes that Israel is evolving. And I think that COVID um, really leveled the playing field in that sense, even more, and gave it a, a boost. Yes. We use a lot of the word of the booster here in Israel, um, but for the third vaccination. But the idea that now um, the relationships, I see it with communities that have uh, some sort of either a business relationship or philanthropic relationship with Israel and outside of Israel. And the fact that now conferences are held by Zoom and meetings, it's not just about coming and visiting Israel. And I'm sure, Paul, you have a lot of experience with that this last year and a half. But having people experience something in the connection to Israel when they're not just standing on the land of Israel means that also Israelis don't just host people coming here. We have a responsibility to give the ideas to help develop something, to support processes, to give consulting to, to do a lot of things that are not just, oh, here, you're welcome, come and visit us. It's much more than that. And that helped a lot of people and communities and organizations in Israel develop this new way of reaching out to communities around the world. That's really interesting what Renit's saying, because what's happened like with the chamber where our work is about the technology and then the culture of Israel, and really, you've got to be here to feel it. And the last year and a half, we've done virtual trade missions. 
And I was very nervous that it's going to be just one dimensional, just about technology. And we're going to miss the Israeli magic dust, what people call. But we've actually managed through Zoom to carry that over. People are leaving the Zooms being inspired, seeing the thinking out of the box that exists in Israel, the chutzpah. And we've moved people who aren't Jewish, haven't been here yet, and are really now just being inspired by what, what the culture is. So this mindset that Brenia talks about is a real thing that just continuously involves in Israel. And that's part of the beauty. And, and a lot of it's to do, there's lots of reasons for it, but the friction that we, talk, we spoke about at the beginning is a big driver of all of that. Um, I, hate, I hate to be the, the guy who ruined the party, but with all, like we're talking about it with so much passion, but we still need to understand that there are lots of challenges with this situation. And I guess if I need to name two that I really um, care about, um, one is, they're both related, but first, I guess the young generation um, don't really understand what Zionism means. Like they don't know to translate Zionism. Some of them will, like I had conversation with people saying, of course, I'm Zionist, I'm Jewish. So, uh, and they don't understand the difference between being Zionist, being pro-Zionist, and also just have lots of love to Israel, you know? Um, and, and, you know, th this practice of Zionism, what it means, do I need to make Aliyah? Is it a must? If I decided that I'm not going to make Aliyah, like Israel is not going to be my home, can I still call myself a Zionist? So, and, and from this, I have like two challenges. One, um, when you're so far from Israel and you're not living in Israel, or you're not there to see things in your own eyes, in times like, you know, um, um, Guardian of the Wall, when the wall, the welfare is mostly in social media, it's hard for you to understand what are the facts. It's hard to you, for you if you're not reading books just by going on social media or just on this particular week to go on Ynet or, I don't know, the AGN, read everything you need to know in order to comment and stuff. It's really hard for you to be knowledgeable and understand the situation good enough in order to advocate for Israel, which is a very important part to the Jews in the diaspora place, right? Um, and you could see it in the rallies and, and you know, how the, the community reacted to Guardian of the Wall. So this is one thing. Um, and it's a major aspect of how we, unfortunately, was in disadvantage um, last summer. And the second thing, I call it, um, I love to use it. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I call it the syndrome of the X. Okay. So the relationship of young people nowadays with Israel is like, breaking up with the ex you know um so you know how you're breaking up and you you you're always thinking about your ex for a certain time you know and sometimes you see on instagram photos and then you're like oh we had a good time i miss him and i wish we could spend some time together should i text him should i visit should i do that and that and that and then if for some time you just don't see it or visit or have any connection with it you just forget about it but then something happened, right? You hear they have a new partner or something like that. And then you're like, oh, I really miss this place. This is the connection young people have now with Israel. They don't see, they don't visit it. They don't visit Israel. They consume information and their love from school, from newspapers, like that. But it's decreasing because there are other issues, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, climate change I, I said most of it before and Israel just don't as important until something like 
um, guardian of the world happens and then suddenly, oh, wait, I miss Israel. I love Israel. I want to live in Israel. Should, am I? Wait. And then. The, the, main, the main thing or one of the things that we ask them when they go back is how much do you turn to Israeli media or to your Israeli friends or to the Facebook pages or not Facebook because it's Instagram for this generation um, to look for information when something happens in Israel. And, and that is a major change. I think for people who visit Israel and become used to looking at Ynet or Um, or reaching out to their friends to ask, so what is really going on? I call it um, developing our muscle of complexity, of being able to deal with complexity. And I even say to the Madrichim at the beginning of the year, your role is to train their muscle of complexity because once people come here and they get the different tools and perspectives that can then inform their thinking, it, then, because why do you ignore your ex after you break up? It's because it's too painful. It's because it's too hard to deal with. But if you build your complexity muscle, and if you have the ways of looking at something from different perspectives, understanding that there are different ways of seeing a certain event, it will be easier to handle. It will be definitely easier to discuss, to hold a debate, to be part of something and not to check out and, and leave the room physically or psychologically or metaphorically. I think, Morris, we have a topic for the next session about how to deal with your ex or overcome the ex. I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's obvious. But I think what's interesting is, you know, up until, I don't know, the 70s or 80s, Israel was the safe haven for the Jewish diaspora. You know, after 2,000 years of being just expelled and, and killed and, and, and persecuted, Um, we're in this really unique era where Jews are relatively safe, even though anti-Semitism is definitely on the rise and, and, and things are happening. But Israel now is more than just a safe, a safe haven for Jews around the world. And it's, it's either inspiration for the innovation, people are coming here for the Tel Aviv beaches, or it's going to Jerusalem to the Kotel, um, or it's even going to the desert. So now Israel has got so many different meanings. So Michael's right. It's, it's probably down, lower down the priority for a lot of people. Yet it just means different things for different people. And as I said, it's just evolving, which is the beauty of what Israel has to offer. Yeah. For me, it's again a conversation we've had over the months. For me, I think Israel, like our Judaism, like everything else, it's part of our soul, even though it may not manifest itself, even though we may not be speaking of it, it may not be obvious. It is, in fact, what points us in a particular direction. It is, in fact, what informs us to act a certain way or say something or behave or believe something. So my comments are not, are not about an either-or situation where you have to come physically to the land or it's that. It really is a continuum of both. And it's, it's, it's more about Israel really getting into our nefesh, really getting into our soul and it being part of our everyday living. To your point, Michael, I understand. But when we talk about younger, when we talk about younger people, regardless of age, it is that time of query. It is that time of uncertainty. For them, the things that you're speaking about are true of many things in, in their life. 
It's not just Israel, that they're grappling for their own sense of purpose and understanding what it is. And that's, that's not a conversation of right or wrong. It's a conversation of really coming to terms with what Israel means to us. My, my joy over the past decades has been that I've gone from what I think to be a fairly passive Israeli person, meaning that I gave, I saw, I went and I did, and that was about it. And of course, I would champion and hold up the flag to in the last decade or so, becoming a really active participant of, of trying to understand, of being part of a community, of trying to understand what I can do. You know, really, it's the return for me now. What can I do that adds a voice or adds some kind of sensibility to Israel? Which is kind of what I wanted to ask you in my next question. I get what's in it for all the people we're talking about, for all the diaspora Jews. Why does Israel want this added headache of having us come and... and which is very foreign, by the way, to most Israeli Jews. Uh, they have not um, discussed, I, I think only in the last three to five years, I'm seeing more and more discussions and coalitions formed and organizations formed around Jewish peoplehood. It is understanding that we're part of a larger thing, not just for our history, but also for the future. And seeing, and seeing that shift from looking back only at Jewish history and Jewish peoplehood throughout the years and the 2000 years up till now or the 3000 years, but rather understanding also the, the idea of being part of, of the Jewish people in the here and now and in building for the future is something that is starting to be more integrated into Israeli thought. And, and by that, it's also, that is part of, of our being part of a big family with all the challenges. So I think it's, um, there's the obvious, you know, network, which is, it's just a great thing to have that know that you're part of something bigger, you know, having this wider, this wider family. But I think the big thing, which I'm hoping that the diaspora Jews can bring to Israel is the tradition, the customs, because here it's quite, it's quite one dimensional. It's either you're religious or you're not. There's not a lot of gray and the gray is coming out suddenly, um, gradually, sorry, very slowly. But, you know, growing up in, in Melbourne, going to Mount Scopus in a secular family, I was very proud of how I would have Torah lesson or Hebrew lesson. I put my kippah on, you know, simple thing. I moved to Israel in year nine, 1983, got to a normal Israeli school. I put my kippah on Torah class and I'm absolutely laughed at by the whole class, including the teacher, right? It was just so foreign to me. So I think having the ability that you can be secular and express your Judaism through different customs and tradition is something missing in Israel, which was, we're now seeing being expressed more and more. And I think the Jews around the world and the Western world, and Australia in particular, have got it right. have got that balance right. If you want to be a Haredi, you can. But if you want to have that secular with a nice mix, I think Australia is one of the best places to, to learn from and be inspired by. Yeah. As I continue to what Tony says uh, in the beginning, like you can see it also in the Israeli community. They shape like a new form of Jewishness. It's like a Israeli Jew, like there, it's like a 
new Israeli Jewishness identity. They will not, like, it's hard to define yourself as a secular Jew because you do come from an Orthodox background, um, but you're not religious. Like, it's so different. Suddenly, you know, you need to find words in English and you, you are not aware of. Um, some things you feel, you know, good with or not. And, and it's, it's interesting. And I'm so happy to hear it starting to happen in Israel because I guess, you know, the progressive community and other relevant communities deserve to be heard in Israel. And hopefully in the years to come, uh, more and more Olim from will represent those communities in Israel. It's more, I mean, the reform and conservative are very important to have in Israel and hope they thrive and flourish. But it's more than just that. It's just being traditional yeah, sure. author. Even that concept just didn't exist in Israel 10, 20 years ago. Um, and now we're seeing it. And now we're seeing it. And it's terrific to see. Look, we have, a, we have a religious prime minister in Israel currently, which is something that I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's unheard of. Like it's, like, it's very natural, I guess, for some people, but for some people, it's just... and a lot more vibrant you know i'm really excited for it it's been missing a lot of the Sephardi jews brought that with them because because they would they missed the whole enlightenment so they've come they've come in fresh and so i think it's going to make um the diversity in israel a lot a lot more vibrant richer and i think that once you go deeper into your own identity and understand your roots better and roots is not just the religious roots it's also the cultural roots and and Jewish literature, and a lot of what has built Jewish identity, secular and orthodox, and, and what we now have as a Jewish identity is Jewish identities. It's many different identities. And giving that the space and enabling people, and young people especially, to dive deep into their own identity and connect with the moral grounds of their identity and the more the the values that are there enables people to have a much richer understanding of what is happening in the here and now and a much better way of dealing with the other with a group of people who are not the same identity whether they're uh, not religious as they are or not secular as they are or with arab israelis versus jewish israelis so i think it's also a, a sense of purpose and meaning so now on the Hagim. Um, for the first time ever, I went to Slichot at the Kotel, you know, the period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There must have been like over 100,000 people and the vast majority were secular, but all praying there. And Morris, it was like one in the morning. So it goes from like uh, midnight to like three in the morning. And it was chockers. You could not move. And the vast majority were secular Jews 
singing the stichot prayers and hymns. And so I think it's going to give an extra sense of purpose and patriotism, which is going to be helpful as we have the challenges that have been discussed already. And the flow of that into Australia, into diaspora Jews, what do you think I, it might be? When you've already think, spoken about the difference in that it's not about it's not all about Aliyah, it's really about connection, about distributed Judaism. Do you think there's any other changes on the horizon that you can see in the way that we might hold our relationships? Yes, I think the best discussion here now with the young generation is um, what it means to be a Jewish state. Um, I walked through some of the schools uh, before COVID. You know, just having the conversation, is it a Jewish state, a state for the Jews? What does it mean, you know, for, for them to understand, you know, what it means for them and see how Israel is shaping through the years with different, you know, um, conflicts within the society. Um, I guess you, you, let, you then can see, you know, how, how the, the community, you know, starts to shape around it. It's not just supporting Israel with blind eyes. It's also having an opinion about transportation in Shabbat or LGBTQI rights or things like that. Um, the, the community is starting to have an opinion uh, about certain things, not necessarily in public, but in schools, in the youth movement, people starting to ask questions. Um, Trigobov Institute, uh, yep. um, and uh, the idea of Judaism and state, it's not about just religion and state, it's not just how do you conduct Jewish, the religious life within a state, but what does it mean to combine the Judaism of our society and the state regarding uh, transportation on Saturday, on Shabbat, regarding who is regarded as a Jew in Israel, regarding everything that has to do with the values that, Jew, that Judaism brings us into uh, holding a democratic state. And really, at the end of the day, it's all going to boil down to more of how the Jewish education system in Australia continues. And that's been, you know, this, the, 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 the secret, the magic source really for the Australian Jewish community is just of how dominant the Jewish day schools are and how such a high percentage of the community send their children there, um, not just for the education, the custom tradition, but also the whole assimilation into marriage, which is a big issue. You know, we're probably, Australia's probably, I don't know, a generation behind America in, 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 in what's going on, that, that race against assimilation and, and hoping, you know, really hoping that the Australian community can continue to support a very strong Jewish day, day school system, which is just so unique around the world. It's amazing. I'll put a plug in there and say that two months ago we spoke about the Jewish education system into the future. So if it's not an episode you've had, you've listened to or watched, I'd love you to go back and pick up on the questions that Paul's asking because I absolutely agree. Also, I'm finding that the analogy between America and Israel and, and sorry, America and Australia and the notion that Australia follows lockstep behind being problematic and increasingly problematic. 
that as you said rightly, Paul, that we are very, very different in the way that we approach Judaism and being Jews. The school system, I think, has a lot to do with as well, but also our structure, our embryonic structure of being mostly post-Holocaust. Of course, of being here since, you know, generation dot, I'm, I'm thrilled to say that my daughter-in-law is ninth generation Australian. So we've been here since literally the 1800s, but predominantly a post-Holocaust response. And all of those things in many ways really make us different to America. There are lessons to be learned, but not direct correlations out of them. You don't think Australia Jewish community follows the American? You think it's different? Not, not lockstep, not in the way that many people think. It's kind of like the analogy that the weather, you know, the weather follows from one state to another. And if you look at it, it will just move along to the next. I think there are lots of lessons we can learn and lots of things that are similar. But for us to say that it's going to exactly happen and we are one generation behind, in other words, this is 2021. And if we take the generation 2031, we'll have this because in America they are doing that now. I think that in many ways is, defeats the purpose of being us, of being unique. So... To me, that's the query of whether we are or we are, and the debate that we're having over these series of conversations. So as a way of wrapping us up, I always invoke the right as a foresight strategist, as a futurist, to put us into a time machine and to move us forward to 2048. So we're about to do that. Collect because I just loved Hina. So by 2048, <laughs> someone with the amazing Israeli innovation ability will be able to finally produce Hina cubes. So I can just take them in a little bag and, um, and just munch them. But um, Israel brand is a brand of, uh, of celebrating diversity and being able to be greater and, and more wonderful thanks to the diversity and thanks to the clashes within the society. Um, so it's a model, yes, of innovation and startup, and I'm going back to where I started from in this conversation, but it's also a model of being a society that can, that can respect and grow from the differences that uh, it's made of. And, and that is a unique thing because we're so small in space and like we don't, there isn't much land. And so in, a, in order to be able to deal with it in the best possible way and, and really to survive, we need with our neighbors and within ourselves to be able to create a much better, uh, much more respectful, much more adaptive way of dealing with who we are and why we're different from our friends next door and, and to grow from there. And, and that's the brand for Israel 2048. The so mine is... Uh, is Ancient one. First of all, I do agree with Ronit. Tchina is the best ever. I have Tchina on everything. So um, I'm waiting for those cues to come out. But to me, it's, it's, the, it's the, the basic tenet of light into the nations and whatever that, whatever that looks like. I think that's what really Israel is. And I've seen it on the missions, Morris, you've, you, you've experienced yourself and being a light into the nations and whatever that looks like in 2048. That's what I, I pray, hope and believe that Israel will continue to play that role. Michael? Um yeah, I'm actually, uh, when he took everything I want to say, I think Israel, the brand of Israel 2048 is just 
a diverse society who celebrates the diversity, in inclusion, the, the differences between each one of us. And hopefully um, everyone in the diaspora will be proud to say, this is Israel. This is a, this is a place I'm calling home. Either it's my first home, my second home. Um, and yeah, this is what I hope. Thank you to all three of you for being such intrepid explorers, Ronit Haid, Michael Mannheim, and Paul Israel. Also for your openness and candor, I've enjoyed our discussion very much and looking at Israel in what I think is a different way from the way that we traditionally do and posing the question of the influence that Israel may have on shaping future Jews 2048. To my team behind the scene of six wonderful, wise advisors, one of which is Paul, without whom this production would not be possible, thank you. Thank you to David Redman also, the CEO of Polaris, the publisher of Australian Jewish News, for taking this challenge on and for producing this incredible series of conversations. And to the team that supports him behind the scenes that make this show possible, my eternal gratitude. And mostly, and most importantly, to each and every one of you who joined me for each webisode to explore the possibilities of future Jews, thank you to you for your feedback, for your generosity, for your comments, and for the spirit with which you're approaching these conversations. Importantly now, it's over to you to take over this conversation and make it your own. Talk boldly, debate loudly, share wildly, both on and offline, and most importantly, dream audaciously. Please, if you're enjoying these conversations, like and share them. If you hadn't, haven't had the opportunity yet, please go back and have a look at some of our other series of conversations. It's important because I think collectively we can envision and begin to get ready for the many wonderful possibilities of future Jews. Until we meet again in the next webisode, my name is Morris Mizzle. Take care, be safe, be kind, be healthy and continue to dream bravely and audaciously about your future possibilities, those of your family, our community, and all future Jews. And we're